Thank you, Chris, for that very kind <clears throat> introduction. Mostly true, mostly true, although he is very uh, much overstating my intelligence. Uh, it's great to be with you guys. I'm just kind of opening up all of my stuff. Um, I wanted to begin before we look to the Word, which we'll be looking in Exodus 15 this morning. Before we get to that, I just wanted to give a quick update. Uh, as Chris mentioned, we've been at um, Tyndale Theological Seminary in Amsterdam. Uh, it'll be eight years in January, and we are still um, we're still pinching ourselves that we get to do this. So it's a it's a mission seminary where we have students on any given uh, academic year from between 20 and 30 different countries. In our alumni base, we have students from over 85 different countries. My home denomination is sending you know, people like us cross-culturally to go to those countries. So it represents a very strategic missions opportunity to uproot my family um, and plant ourselves there, invest in our students, and seek to uh, impact the world through them. You know, it's 2 Timothy 2, 2, entrust these things to faithful men who will entrust them to others also. And um, it, that... If that's all I had to do or got to do for the rest of my life, I would be a very, very happy man, um, and it's a joy to do that. Um, in God's sovereignty, His providence, He's opened up um, other doors of opportunity through my position at Tyndale, uh, where now I'm having opportunity, along with some Dutch partners, to represent Tyndale uh, and lead uh, some conferences aimed at resourcing pastors. Uh, we first had such a conference at our, uh, in our chapel at Tyndale back in 2019. Uh, we, we had to shut down re registration some two weeks before the event because it filled up. We had 60 pastors from all over different denominations and different parts of the Netherlands and then about 30 of our people. And in that conference, pastor after pastor after pastor were telling me, this is a great conference. I had never heard of Tyndale Theological Seminary until this conference, and that really bothered me. Like, why are we the best kept secret in theological education uh, in the Netherlands, in Western Europe? There are not confessional evangelical seminaries and Bible schools, you know, aplenty in Western Europe. Um, so I came out of that conference with a real burden to seek to train more, uh, more Dutch brothers to fill pulpits throughout the Netherlands. Um, so one of the things I would just ask you guys to be praying, us, praying along with us for is that. We're starting to see some um, result, I think, some fruit of these efforts. We've been you know, working together with Dutch partners to put on a yearly Preachers and Leaders Conference. We've now had our third iteration of that Iteration number four comes this June, 24th through 25th. I don't know if you know the name Carl Truman. He's written a lot um, of late um, uh, addressing some of our strange new world um, is one of his books, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. But he's, he's explaining, you know, how we've moved in just a couple of generations to um, be in the place we're at. So he's going to come and, and be a part of the conference. That's a big, I think it's a big opportunity for us. And so I ask you to pray 
And then, as uh, Chris mentioned, my wife helps me tremendously now. She's my assistant in my role as director of institutional relations. And uh, she's my best friend. She has been for years. Um, but I think I'm, you know, growing to see also just how brilliant she is as she uh, does so much uh, to help me. Uh, every, it seems like everything she puts her hands to, uh, the Lord really blesses. So really thankful for her. Uh, the kids are now in their sixth year of Dutch school, so they're fluent in Dutch. Um, but what that means is they take all of their classes in Dutch. So they learn math in Dutch, science in Dutch, French in Dutch, German in Dutch, Spanish in Dutch, and they're doing great. Uh, so really thankful for God's kindness. We made that decision to put them in the Dutch public school system because we felt like this is where God wants us uh, for years to come, and the Lord has really blessed that. All right, so that's my update. Let's go ahead and turn, if you haven't already, with me to uh, Exodus chapter 15. Uh, if you're new to the Bible or new to the church, uh, Exodus, the second book uh, in the Bible, um, the big numbers are chapters, the little numbers are verses. We're going to be looking at Exodus 15, 1 through 18, under the title, A Song for the Journey, Singing God's Power to Save from Conversion to the New Jerusalem. A Song for the Journey, Singing God's Power to Save from Conversion to the New Jerusalem. So in a second, we're going to read a little bit broader. We're looking at Exodus 15, 1 through 18, but we're going to you know, go back a couple of verses into the previous chapter and then a few extra verses to kind of see the, the narrative, a little bit of the narrative into which the song is embedded, okay? So before we do that, let's go to the Lord and ask for his help. Our Father, we thank you for this sacred moment, this time where we can look at your word. I pray for your help both for me by your Spirit and for my hearers by your Spirit, would you help us to see the glory of your redemption that ultimately points to a new exodus that you bring through your Son, Jesus Christ. Uh, Lord, would you help us um, to become worshipers Help us to sing this song and many others like it. And may we be a singing people, a people who sing your praise. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Songs are powerful. They connect our head and heart, tap into our emotions. They poetically press everyday realities as well as life-changing moments into our souls. They're also memorable. I think I'm probably not the only one here that you haven't sung a song in years, but you hear the tune, and then, boom, out of your mouth comes the words. The power of a song is evident in the way that they shape our identity, our worldviews. And not just individually, but also corporately. You can think about like the national anthem, for instance. I've had moments where, you know, in singing it, 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 it grips me. 
I'm, I'm moved emotionally because I'm an American. I, I identify as an American because I am an American. Or you can think about iconic songs in our culture uh, that, really t- uh, that, that really are a part of the fabric of how people think. Also, particular worship songs. Uh, obviously, you guys have been a gracious missions partner for eight years. I'm, I'm here from time to time. But I'm sure that if I were worshiping, if this were my church, I would recognize that from week to week and over months, there are certain, probably, at least this is true of my church back in Amsterdam, there are certain songs that the church together leans into just a little bit more, right? They're, they're, they're shaping your culture, your identity as a worshiping community, exalting and glorifying the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, Exodus 15, 1 through 18 is fundamentally an identity-shaping song meant to form a people who will worship and serve the living God, for that is the purpose of our existence. This song drives this glorious reality home. And let's read from the book of Exodus. So I want to back up into chapter 14, verse 30, and I'm going to read through verse 21. Thus the Lord saved that day from the hand, I'm sorry, thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song and has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The the floods stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue. I will overtake. I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind, the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand, the earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them 
by your strength to your holy abode. The people have heard they tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them. Because of the greatness of your arm, they are still as a stone till your people, O Lord, pass by. Till the people pass by whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. For when the horses of Pharaoh with his chariots and his horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground in the midst of the sea. Then Miriam the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing. And Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and the rider he has thrown into the sea. This is the word of the Lord. The song summarizes the whole book of Exodus and beyond in 18 short, pithy, poetic verses. The Lord is redeeming his people and bringing them to dwell on his holy mountain. This song is embedded in the unfolding narrative of God's promised redemption. This song and others like it illuminate the gospel storyline that goes all the way back to Genesis 3.15. Back in Genesis 3.15, after the fall, God promises uh, in his judgment curse upon the serpent, he promises that the seed of the woman would crush the serpent's head. The book of Exodus continues and answers the book of Genesis. Whereas Genesis ends with Israel in exile in Egypt, that's where Exodus begins. And whereas Genesis 1.28 commanded the original couple to be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth, Exodus chapter 1, verse 7 begins by telling us that Abraham's offspring have been fruitful, that they're multiplying, that they're now filling Egypt. And this is what creates the crisis for the new Pharaoh who knew not Joseph, and whereas Genesis 3.15, I mentioned a moment ago, promised the male seed, the male offspring of Eve would crush the serpent's head, Exodus chapter one closes with Pharaoh serving as the seed of the serpent figure. And he's enacting a plan to have all the male offspring, all the male seed of Israel cast into the Nile. When we come to the end of Exodus chapter one, it appears that the seed of the serpent will triumph over Abraham's seed, the seed of the woman. But Exodus two gives hope by means of a baby in a basket, Moses, delivered from the genocidal floodwaters of Pharaoh. And as Adam and Eve's rebellion against the Lord God resulted in their being expelled east of Eden, 
from the presence of the Lord. Exodus answers that Genesis 3 judgment and exile from its presence because it describes how the Lord God raised up a Savior, Moses, who would lead his people out of Egypt in the Exodus and bring his people to himself at Sinai and enter into covenant with him. And then the book of Exodus from chapters 25 through 40 detail the goal of the Lord in all of this. And that is to dwell once more in the presence of his people. And the last 15 chapters of the book of Exodus are all about the Lord's tabernacling presence amongst his people. So in judgment, God's presence, life with him is lost in Eden, exiled east of Eden, and the book of Exodus is bringing all of God's people not back into his presence, but God is bringing his presence down in the midst of his people. It's a reversal of that judgment in the salvation of the Exodus. The song points, I think, beyond the boundaries of Exodus 40 and the Lord God's glory coming down on the tabernacle as it speaks of our God bringing his people all the way to himself, planting them on his own holy mountain, his abode, the sanctuary that his hands have established. It points to the conquest of the land and I think it points beyond fulfilling the Lord's promises to Abraham of making him a numerous people and providing them promised property. So those twin promises of the Abrahamic covenant, land and lineage, genealogy and geography, people and property. The big idea of the sermon this morning is this. The Lord Jesus, the incomparable God, demonstrates his kingship by delivering his people from slavery so that we might praise him forever in his presence. That was fast and that was a little wordy. That's the professor coming out in me, I, I confess. The Lord Jesus, the incomparable God, demonstrates his kingship by delivering his people from slavery so that we might praise him forever in his presence. And we're gonna look at that under two points today. The first is singing God's power to save, verses one through 12. Singing God's power to save. And then the second point from verses 13 through 18 is singing until we reach the new Jerusalem. Singing until we reach the new Jerusalem. So first, singing God's power to save. Verses one through 12. So this first big movement of the song poetically retells God's salvation of his people from slavery in Egypt. Fundamentally how God fought and destroyed his enemy at the Red Sea. Yes, this was the people's enemy, but fundamentally, Pharaoh and Egypt are the Lord's enemy. Exodus chapter four through 13 details the 10 plagues the Lord God brought upon Egypt and Pharaoh to rescue his people from the hand of Pharaoh. And Exodus 14 declares how and why the Lord further hardened the heart of Pharaoh and Egypt to pursue Israel out to the, to the sea. 
Have you ever, I don't know how familiar you are with the book of Exodus, but, but has it ever struck you that by chapter 12, they're out? With the 10th plague and the death of the firstborn throughout Egypt, you know, and, and, and Israel smearing the blood of the lamb over the doorpost so that, uh, so that the Lord passed over their houses, but he struck down the firstborn in every single home of Egypt. That was the 10th climactic plague that triggered their redemption. Pharaoh finally is like, get out of here, and they exit Egypt. Right? They go out in the exodus. Well, they're saved, uh, right? They're, they're redeemed, they're brought out. But then you get to chapter 14, and it's like the Lord is not done. And chapter 14 makes clear the Lord hardens Pharaoh's heart and his army again so that they go out after Israel now because the Lord in his ultimate purpose isn't simply the salvation of his people, but it's the glory of his name in saving his people so that all might know. Three times the text tells us, right, that he's hardening his heart in order to get glory over Pharaoh and in order that others might know his name, right? There's a salvation purpose. And when we get to the book of Joshua and we see Rahab's response to the spies, you see how the word is getting out about what the Lord had done. So we see the Lord's ultimate goal is to get glory over Pharaoh and Egypt by destroying them in the sea. And this psalm, the song that I read is the response of the redeemed to glorify God, to glory in Yahweh through song, exalting his greatness. In verses one through two, we see how salvation is personal. Verses one through two summarize what verses three through 12 will more fully unpack. And emphasizing though, as no other part of the song, the personal nature of God's salvation. We see in these verses, the Lord is my strength, my song, my salvation, my God. You see, salvation is personal, not hypothetical. You and I need to be saved. Maybe you're here this morning and, and that's a little controversial. Maybe that's a little offensive. But for everyone in here, according to scriptures, everyone in here needs to be saved from sin, from death, from hell, from the devil. But, but we also need to be saved from the very wrath of God we deserve because of our sins. And Moses leads out in singing this song, my strength, Yahweh is my strength, my song, my salvation, my God. And I just want to ask this morning, can you say that? Jesus is my Lord and Savior. Not just hypothetical that Jesus died for sinners like us. That's true. But can you say that he died for you? He's rescued you, that you're trusting in him. He is your Lord, your Savior. There's no salvation apart from that. The great Billy Graham was famous of saying that God has no grandchildren, right? If you're a child or a young person today, you don't get through the Red Sea 
on mom and dad's coattails. You don't get into glory because your mom and dad are Christians alone. You must be your Savior. In verses 3 through 5, 7 through 10, and 12, we see really the gospel according to Moses. That Yahweh is a warrior. He is a man of war. Verse 3 declares that. Back in Exodus 14, 14 and 25, you can see how the Lord fought for his people. He fights against his enemies for the good of his people. And verses 4 through 12 here in the song unpack this, glory, this glorious reality. Uh, the poetry of the song functions through an economy of words and figurative language to speak of the same concrete realities that are relayed in chapter 14, but, but yet poetically. It's, it's just, so listen to some of the ways that God's redemption of his people, a salvation through judgment, because remember, he's already redeemed them by this point from Egypt. So he brings them to the Red Sea, and the description of, of chapter 4 is now put poetically in song, as songs are apt to do. The Lord cast or throws Pharaoh's chariots into the sea. Yahweh's right hand shatters the enemy. The blast of his nostrils caused the waters to pile up. The Lord blew with his wind, and waters covered them. Yahweh stretched out his right hand. The earth swallowed them. All right, let's run back through these, okay? Just all of that language is talking about the same event. It's not talking about five different salvations. It, it, it's it's, it's kind of like, you know, when I was pursuing my wife and I went to the jewelry store and I was looking for a diamond ring and I got the little cool eyepiece, you know, and I'm holding the diamond up and I'm looking at every facet of the diamond. It's one diamond. Right? All these different descriptions are describing the same salvation that God wrought for his people at the Red Sea. They're just different facets of the same salvation. So he says that Yahweh cast or throws Pharaoh's chariots into the sea. And the language of him doing such, him, him casting Pharaoh's military might into the sea echoes, echoes back to the previous Pharaoh's arrogant and genocidal command to have all of the male seed of Israel thrown into the Nile. Remember, I mentioned that a second ago toward the beginning of the sermon, how Pharaoh in, in, in Exodus 1 had, had sent a decree that the male seed of Israel should be thrown into the Nile. And now in redeeming his people, now we have the Lord casting Pharaoh and his military and their chariots into the Red Sea. Yahweh's right hand shatters the enemy. It's another way to, to poetically speak of throwing Pharaoh and his army into the sea, right? His right hand shattering the enemy. Again, this isn't referring to a separate event. The language is similar to what we find later in Isaiah 59, I'm sorry, 51.9, that refers back to the Exodus, right? Isaiah's referring back to the Exodus and, and, and he's, he's speaking of how Yahweh hacked Rahab to pieces, not the Rahab from Joshua too, by the way, and, and how he pierced the sea monster at the Red Sea, right? It's similar language. And Pharaoh, you know, 
throughout Exodus and, and, and in extra biblical stuff, you can see Pharaoh is this serpentine figure. He, even had a, he had even had a, ser, a serpent on his hat, okay? The blast of his nostrils caused the waters to pile up. This is referring to what happened back in Exodus 14, 21, by means of Moses' outstretched staff and the east wind blowing all night. Yahweh blew with his wind and the waters covered them. Again, the Lord's fighting for his people. And this answers Egypt's arrogant boast of destruction and plundering. Listen again to verse 9. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. This is Pharaoh and his army standing at the Red Sea after the Israelites have entered in and the walls of water are part, or the, wall, the water is parted and there's walls on either side and Israel goes in on dry ground and this is the enemy saying, let's go get them boys. With all this arrogance and all this pride, Yahweh blew with his wind and the waters covered them. Yahweh stretched out his right hand, verse 12, and the earth swallowed them. Now this swallowing, the language of it, uh, I think echoes back to Exodus 7, 8 through 12. You may know the story when, when, when Aaron cast down his staff to the ground before Pharaoh and it turns into, it says typically snake or serpent in the text, but literally a dragon. It's a different word than snake here. And then the magicians of Pharaoh come along and they do likewise. They throw down their, their, uh, their, their, their staff and there's become these dragons. And then what happens? Aaron's dragon staff then swallows up. Goop, goop, goop. Swallows up each of these other staffs, right? Aaron's staff swallows up their staffs and that event before Pharaoh foreshadows what the song is singing about, this Red Sea judgment of the earth swallowing up Pharaoh and his army in victory, in judgment, in the salvation of his people. Whereas the Pharaoh at the end of Exodus 1 commanded his people to cast male Israelites into the Nile, Yahweh throws Pharaoh and his army into the sea. And as Aaron's dragon staff swallowed up the dragon staffs of Pharaoh's magician, Yahweh caused the earth to swallow up Pharaoh, that dragon serpent in the sea. The Lord God's salvation of his people through judgment at the sea is tapping into that same glorious promise that the seed of the woman would crush the serpent's head back in Genesis 3.15. God, working through Moses, has crushed the seed of the serpent in delivering his people from slavery. See? These are not isolated events. They're, they're connected. God's promises are mounting and coming together as they're pointing to Christ. And 1 Corinthians 10 connects the people of God passing through the water of the sea here in Exodus with baptism. 
in which we are submerged into the water, buried together with Christ in His death and raised up with Him to new life. Do you see? The sea was judgment and death for the Egyptians. But God brought His people through the waters of judgment, much as He did Noah in Genesis 6-9. through The sea crossing points to the cross of Christ. The judgment of God on sin, sinners, and that great enemy of our souls, the devil himself. At the cross, all of God's judgment for the sins of all who would believe was placed on Christ. Jesus bore the infinite wrath of God the sea of the judgment of God. But in that very same event, we who are trusting in Christ have salvation from our sins. We are released from bondage. Our our enemy is defeated and we are ultimately redeemed. And our enemy is ultimately destroyed because Jesus took God's judgment for our sins, passing through these waters of death, the sea of baptism. So then coming through these waters of death on the other side is life from the grave, life from the dead. It is resurrection. It is a salvation through judgment to new life with God. And it leads, the, it leads Moses to sing both in verse 6 and verse 11 of the incomparability of our God. All of this causes the redeemed to worship, to wonder in awe who is like Yahweh, who is like our great God and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And the double, que- the double question provokes the obvious answer. Oh, let me count a few. No, no one. We are saved powerfully and graciously by God and it is so clearly all of him. We have been saved. We see that no one is like the Lord. He is simply incomparable. Then there is nothing left to do but to praise, to sing of his greatness, to sing of his power to save. Verses one through 12 are all about the Lord's great salvation of his people that is simultaneously the destruction of his enemy, our enemy. God's glory in salvation through judgment is a salvation from Pharaoh, from slavery, and for us, it's a a salvation from sin. But the Lord's salvation isn't simply from sin or even from his wrath, but it is a salvation to a restored relationship with our glorious creator God to a covenant, to fellowship, to being restored to rightly praise our Redeemer in his presence forever and ever. And so we move to verses 13 through 18 and the second point, singing until we reach the new Jerusalem. Singing until we reach the new Jerusalem. 
So the big transition here is that Israel is moving out from the sea, delivered from judgment, and that experience is to form them, to shape them, to help them keep on trusting God, the Lord of the Exodus. Much the same way, friends, much the same way, brothers and sisters, that the cross and the empty tomb are the certainty of our future salvation from the wrath to come. Right? We look back, we look back to the cross, we look back to the empty tomb, the resurrection, his ascension. We look back to these glorious realities because they are the certainty that we will be with him. That when we see him, we will see him as he is and we will be like him, right? And so for the Israelites coming through the sea, singing the song, singing about God's power to save in the Exodus, was their confidence that God taking them into the land in the conquest, that he would work the same salvation that he had worked for them in bringing them out in the Exodus. And you see that all through the text. Verses 12 through 13, we see how the Lord delivers to shepherd his people to his holy pasture land. The Lord is leading and he's guiding his redeemed. The language is of a shepherd tending his flock. And the language echoes Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. And the Lord's holy abode here in verse 13, quite literally is his holy pasture land, a feeding area that a shepherd would lead his sheep into along the journey. And this holy abode referred to in verse 13 is probably the other side of the sea initially, where they broke into song, but I would say it's aimed at where we're going and where the song goes in verse 17, Yahweh's holy mountain. That's at the other side of the sea they sing, and at every stop along the way to Yahweh's holy mountain, they should be singing, singing, singing the Lord's power to save. Verses 14 through 16, we see Yahweh's awesome power gripping the inhabitants of Canaan. These verses reference three geographical areas of Canaan. The Lord's power to save and the exodus will overwhelm those in the land. I mentioned a second ago, think of, you think of Rahab in Joshua chapter 2, the, the prostitute who um, heard about the Lord. And actually, her, her dialogue with the two spies that were sent out echoes the language of this song, right? It, it's, it's like, it's almost like she's heard the song. She's definitely heard of how the Lord has delivered his people from Egypt and what he had done to Pharaoh, right? And she believes, and she's saved as Jericho is raised and destroyed. She is saved along with her family. And we turn the pages into the New Testament. She's in the genealogy of Jesus, right? And she believes and she trusts in the Lord through this. In 5b, they sing that Egypt went down into the depths like a stone. Here in 16b, they sing this, this connection between the exodus and the conquest. They sing because of the greatness of your arm. They, the inhabitants of the land, are as still as a stone. You see? The salvation of Yahweh at the sea prepares them for his salvation in the land. By sea or by land, 
Yahweh is a man of war. He is fighting for his people against his enemies. The Exodus prepares them for the conquest. They are, they are intimately connected, right? The Lord and his people, uh, I'm sorry, Yahweh and his awesome deeds strike terror and trembling in the hearts of the people of the land. The text is clear. It's not the people. It's not Israel itself that is um, intimidating or striking fear in the hearts of the inhabitants of the land, but it's the Lord himself. Not themselves, but, but God. That said, we don't even get out of Exodus 15 before the people go three days' journey without water and begin to grumble against Moses. And this grumbling against Moses and Yahweh becomes more characteristic of the people than the faith that this song is designed to stir up. This is important. This is massively important. And we'll come back to it in a second. But look again at verses 17 through 18. This is the climax of the song. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. The Lord, King over his people in his sanctuary. So this song concludes climaxing in the, the glorious promises that our saving shepherd warrior king is bringing us all the way home to plant us on his own mountain. The abode he's made, the sanctuary his hands have established. By the way, that can't be said about the tabernacle because it was the hands of the people assembling that. Right? And the text tells us that the Lord who is a man of war will rule and reign over his people forever. God's kingly rule. He saves and reigns. He shepherds his people from holy resting place to resting place. But he's ultimately leading us all the way home. The salvation of Yahweh our God is not just a salvation from our enemies, or from his judgment, but it is, as I said earlier, unto himself. It is to know, to love, to adore, to worship the living God. Exodus 25 through 40, fundamentally, I'm sorry, our, Exodus chapters 25 through 40 are fundamentally about the Lord God taking up his dwelling presence in the midst of his redeemed people. It's about his glory, his fiery presence, scorching the top of Sinai, transitioning from the mountain to his glory coming down on the tabernacle in Exodus 40, and with such brilliance that Moses cannot even enter in. The song is anticipating this, but I think it's anticipating more. The language is anticipating not simply God coming to dwell in the presence of his people, but God bringing us all the way to his mountain to dwell in his presence. 
I want you to listen to a passage that picks up on the song. And it comes from Isaiah 25. Verses 6 and 9. You'll hear the connections. You should hear the connections. Maybe I shouldn't be so confident. No. You're a smart bunch. You'll hear the connections. Isaiah 25, 6 through 9. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined, And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, behold, This is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. You see? We're not talking about two different mountains. Isaiah 25 is is taking this glorious promise of Exodus 15 and pressing it further ahead, right? The text talked about God swallowing up Pharaoh and his army in the Red Sea. On this mountain, Isaiah says, death will be swallowed up forever. And that God is going to wipe away the tears from our eyes. You see, what this song, what Exodus 15 is singing about, isn't talking about just the tabernacle or just the temple or just Jesus' incarnation or just this point in redemptive history where the church is described as the temple of the living God, the place of his presence, the place of his glory. No. What Moses is singing about, what the people sang about coming through the sea is that God is ultimately taking us to plant them on his own mountain, the place that he has made for his abode. You think of John 14, Jesus saying, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. Did you hear how Isaiah talked about God wiping away the tears from our eyes? That's Revelation 21. What Moses is bringing us to sing about is that God, our good shepherd, warrior king, is bringing us all the way home to his presence where there is no sin, where there is no death. This song, this song is glorious. And the goal of our salvation is to dwell in the presence of our God and worship our God and the Lamb forever. This is a song for the journey. A song to form the people of God and strengthen our resolve to trust and the Lord, our Lord Jesus, no matter what. The journey is long, it's windy, it's difficult. Prior to the song and the Red Sea deliverance, back in Exodus 14, 10 through 14, the people rebelled against the Lord. Their language is shocking. You know what they say? 
aren't there, aren't there graves back in Egypt? Why did you bring us out here in the wilderness to die in the wilderness? Like, thanks a lot, God. Thanks a lot. And the Lord, through Moses, promises, be still and watch the Lord fight for you. And the Lord fights for them destroys Pharaoh and his army in the sea. And at the end of Exodus 14, the text then says that the Israelites feared Yahweh and trusted in him and in his servant Moses. Then they sing the song and what? They ride off into the sunset with Yahweh, right? Right? No. Come on, you've read this story? As we keep reading, Exodus 15, 22 and following tells us that they're three days journey without water. Now that's a big deal. I don't want to minimize that. But their three days journey without water, having experienced this great and glorious salvation, and they begin to grumble against Moses. Grumble against the Lord. And this grumbling at Moses and the Lord will come to characterize them And friends, it's the opposite of faith. It destroys a heart of worship. It destroys faith. By the time we get to Numbers 14, Israel's rebellion, their refusal to go up from Kadesh Barnea and take the promised land, the very promised land and conquest that's promised in this song, the Lord declares that Israel does not trust him. The Exodus generation is sentenced to die in the wilderness due to their unbelief. And then in Deuteronomy chapter one, Moses is on the plains of Moab. He's proclaiming the covenant to the next generation. And he echoes later in in verse 32 of Deuteronomy chapter one, he echoes Israel's rebellion at Kadesh as well as Exodus 14 and how the Lord had fought for them but he drives home as a warning to the second generation. He drives home the point of Israel's unbelief. The Exodus generation died in unbelief in the wilderness and Moses is warning the second generation. Didn't that song promise that the Lord would fight against the inhabitants of Canaan just like he fought against Egypt? Didn't he promise that the Canaanites would be in terror, still as a stone, just like Egypt sank like a stone in the sea? Brothers and sisters, don't you see? While Israel trusted in the Lord at the end of Exodus 14, they did not persevere in that trust. They did not continue in faith. This is the warning of the book of Hebrews. Don't be like the Exodus generation that experienced something of the salvation of the Lord God coming out of Egypt, but they did not enter into that rest. This song anchors the certainty a future rest in the accomplished fact of the Lord, our divine warrior, shepherd king, destroying our great enemy, the devil himself, and this happened ultimately at the cross of Calvary. I don't mean to be simplistic here, but it seems to me that the problem for that first generation was that they stopped singing. They stopped singing the gospel. They stopped singing God's power to save. Is it possible that the lesson that we need to learn from the song by the sea embedded in the Torah and the the Exodus generation dying in unbelief in the wilderness 
is that we need to keep on singing. That we need to keep on singing our triune God's power to save. Our God is a man of war destroying the enemy. Jesus crushed the serpent's head at the cross and he is returning, Revelation 19, on a white war horse dashing his enemies like pottery, judging with the sword of his mouth, his very word, Friends, salvation belongs to our God. He redeems us and he puts a song of redemption in our mouths to sing of it. So as part of our persevering in faith, singing, do we have here a warning that a failure to be a doxological Christian, that is a Christian who is singing praise to the Lord, could result in damning unbelief? I'm not talking about justification by singing. I'm talking about a true faith in our great saving shepherd king, the Lord Jesus, producing in us a heart of praise. If there's no heart of praise, there's no true faith. But that's not even what I'm getting at this morning. I'm talking to you right now, Christian, okay? I'm talking about how God appoints both the end of our salvation, but also the means to that end, right? Um, You can think about the ordinary means of grace. You can think about prayer. But if God has appointed our final salvation, then he has also given us worship. He's given us songs to sing to him, to stir ourselves up at times and especially especially in those times like when we've gone three days journey without water and we find ourselves coming unhinged. I'm guessing that in a room this big, I'm not the only one that has found myself in that place. Right? Have you ever been there? wanting to blame God, grumbling a little bit, God forbid, maybe feeling like life was better before you knew Jesus. What do you, what do, you do? What do you do? I'll tell you what you do. Sing. Sing the gospel. And if I can't sing, I listen until I can sing. You know, I've come in to the worship gathering, even even as a pastor, oh yeah, even as a pastor, so burdened, so, yeah. And I just couldn't sing. So as I look around and I hear my other brothers and sisters singing, it actually doesn't take too long for the Lord to begin to warm my heart and move me to join in this glorious chorus of of singing of our great redemption. I learned early in my Christian faith that sometimes God uses the gospel through song to break through my hardness or lethargy, to refresh, to renew, to wake me up to the glorious reality of my salvation from sin, 
death, hell, and the devil through my conquering shepherd king, the Lord Jesus. Now, I've been a Christian a few years now. I think it's like 27 years. I'm like two decades removed from seminary. There are brothers that I studied with preparing for gospel ministry that are no longer married to their wives. Some are no longer in ministry. Some are no longer following Christ. Our conference last summer, I was talking about some of our conferences, our conference last summer was on doxology. And it's because I'm, I'm more and more convinced, brothers and sisters, if I'm gonna get to the new heavens and the new earth, if I'm gonna get to the celestial city, as Bunyan talks about in Pilgrim's Progress, by gosh, I'm gonna get there singing or I'm not gonna get there at all. The song by the sea is a song of deliverance and a promise of future deliverance so that we might dwell in the Lord's presence, that we might glorify our God and enjoy him forever. But you gotta start enjoying him now. And judging from the songs of Revelation and the reference in Revelation to the song of Moses, you can be assured that when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we'll have no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. Let's pray, and then I want to encourage you to sing. I know we don't have a song coming up, but let's sing. Let's continue to sing, brothers and sisters, until we're all the way home. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful that you are our warrior king. You are a man of war. And while that may seem abrasive and, and, and rub against some of our culture's sensibilities, uh, Lord, we need such a savior and you are such a savior. And our Lord Jesus is such a savior. He is the conquering king. He was first the lamb led to the slaughter, but he will come again. And he will come again as the lion of the tribe of Judah. And we thank you that we have such a savior. And I pray, Father, for my brothers and sisters in Christ that you would be moving our hearts to reflect back, to look back, to, to lean into what you have done for us even as we long for and await glory, as we long for and await your presence. May we be well rehearsed, well prepared. May we be men and women, children of you who delight in you and worship you and praise you. Oh, Lord, we know your word says there are pleasures at your right hand forevermore. You are the fountain of living waters. You are a delight. Uh, may you be our all in all and may we, may we find our greatest satisfaction in you, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.